Good morning, Richmond. Oh, it's nice and loud. It's good to see you all this morning. For any of you I haven't met before, my name's Josh. I'm really excited to gather this morning. As Alyssa said, great to have a good early alarm clock this morning. If I seem a little weary, I lost 10 minutes of sleep because of it, but we'll get there. But as we mentioned, we're starting a new series this morning on Lent. Um, so Lent kicked off Wednesday this week. Um, I'm not sure what your experience have been of Lent, but mine hasn't been much. If I'm honest, until recent years, I would have been able to name Lent was this time when a few people chose to fast and give something up, and that it usually happened somewhere around Easter. But that would have been about the extent of what I knew about it. But Lent is this period of time that the church has been doing for, for the longest time, where we anticipate Easter together. Um, it's been written about since as early as the 4th century, and it's 40 days where the church fasts, gives up certain things, or intentionally reflects on the gospel. And the 40 days is chosen as this reflection of Jesus' 40 days of temptation in the desert at the beginning of his ministry. And there's certain practices, certain traditions that are associated with the time, depending on which church denomination you're a part of. But the 40 days are from the Ash Wednesday, so the Wednesday that's just gone until Good Friday. And if any of you get your calendars out and quickly look at it, you'll know that you need to correct me soon and tell me that that isn't 40 days. Because one of the things I've learned this week is that that's actually, I think, 45 days because the Sundays in um, Lent don't count towards the 40 days of fasting. So the Sundays are actually days of feasting where we break from our fast and celebrate. But we've called this series Lenten Practices, as you can see on the slide. And practices is a super Richmond word, isn't it? I think it comes up every time we do Richmond bingo. I think we might have even done a sermon on the word practices before. But I've been reflecting this week, another word we could have used, maybe one we should have used because we would have been able to use alliteration and we always love that, is liturgies. We could have had Lenten liturgies. But I was looking up this week what we mean by liturgies and what the difference is with practices. And Wikipedia, I know, it started on Wikipedia, but it actually had a really helpful definition for liturgies. And that is that liturgies represent a communal response to and participation in the sacred. Wikipedia comes out with some gems sometimes. I really love that. As communal response to and participation in the sacred. Because when growing up, when I didn't know about things like Lent or didn't know much about them, if I'm honest, I didn't really love the word liturgy. Um, it kind of made me feel a bit itchy, made me picture those forms of religion where there was lots of candles, but they weren't the nice kind of candles. Solemnity, monotone voices, formality, dryness, they were the sort of things that came to mind when I talked about liturgy. And perhaps the fact that those kind of things make me feel itchy is why I feel pretty comfortable here at Richmond. Remember when I first came here, I looked up on stage and there was people in the band without shoes on, there weren't many collars around. The start time seemed negotiable, and I feel really comfortable with that. I really like a lack of tradition and liturgies at times, which is why I've been surprised in recent years. I've been drawn back to the traditions of the church. I found myself excited by the idea of some form of liturgy. And I think what's helped me in that is being seeing liturgies and practices connected to their meaning, connected to what they're really about. Because when they become disconnected, they start to feel stuffy. They start to feel dry and stale. And that's because they're missing life. But if its sole purpose is to connect us to the sacred, how can it be missing life? If it's pointing to King Jesus, how can it be missing life? These liturgies, when they're connected to the meaning they deserve, the meaning they come from, they point us to the King. They point us to hope. They point us to life. 
And so in the coming six weeks, we're going to look at six practices. Confession, fasting, penance, prayer, giving, and feasting. And as you hear those, you might hear some that are easy to connect to life. kind of wish I got the week that was on, fa- on feasting. I can really see how that connects to life. I'd love to sort of maybe have a feast, discuss what it looks like. I could skip the week on fasting. But things like confession, penance, what do they have to do with life? Surely they're pointing to the absence of life. But my hope throughout this series is that we participate in practices that have meaning. Perhaps meaning that's been forgotten or cast to the side. And that when we participate in these practices, when we live them out, we see that they do point to the kingdom. That they are life-giving. After one of the passages Lisa read this morning talked about the fact that when we don't confess, our bodies wear away. Confession, even though it seems like pointing to an absence of life or something quite dry, it's connected to life. As Alyssa mentioned, throughout Lent, one of the simple things we're going to be doing as a community is having simple practices posted up daily on our social media. Things that we can participate in and do together as we're separate throughout the week. But hopefully even in simple practices like lighting a candle, and hopefully a nice candle, we can see meaning. We can see that we are connected together to the sacred. That these simple acts remind us of who God is. Remind us where we have fallen short, what we are called to be. Remind us that God is at work. That God's redemption is taking place. Because practices ground us in the reality of the gospel. They ground us in God's work. They remind us that we are a part of a great story. A great story that we often forget. We forget a great story because we can't see the forest for the trees. We're so busy, caught up in our day-to-day, getting the next thing done, getting through the to-do list, that we forget we're part of a much bigger story. And simple things, liturgies, practices, they help ground us in the reality we're a part of. They remind us of the sacred importance of the everyday. Things like communion, a simple meal. Remind us that food is a gift, that food gives life. And so, yes, liturgies can be a scary word, one that gets us itchy. I still feel a little bit that way. But maybe if we use Richmond lingo, we call them things like practices or patterns, we can help be reminded of the reality that we all participate in liturgies. Some that are helpful, some that are unhelpful. But ultimately, our practices shape us. James Smith, this author, wrote quite a wordy definition or thing about liturgies, but I found it really helpful. And he wrote that liturgies, whether sacred or secular, shape and constitute our identities by forming our most fundamental desires and our most basic attunement to the world. In short, liturgies make us certain kinds of people. And what defines us is what we love. So in this period of Lent, each year, we intentionally take some time to participate in liturgies, in traditions, in practices and rhythms that shape our identities into the people we are called to be. To love in the way that we are called to love. So we'll turn our attention to the first practice we want to look at over this series, and that is looking at confession. Which, I've got to be honest, is a really scary topic to preach on, um, Maybe that's just me, but every time I've heard a sermon on confession, I found myself shrinking back in my chair a little bit, hoping people aren't looking at me, feeling sometimes it's a bit directed at me that that, God's really trying to speak at me and he's trying to judge me. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I've got too much going on in there. Maybe you feel comfortable with sermons on confession. 
But ultimately, guilt and judgment are not what confession is about. That's the first thing I want to suggest this morning. Many of you will know, a few years ago, I went over to Canada for study. And I was sitting down in orientation week, and I sat next to another student whose name was Sam. And he told me he'd been studying somewhere else for a few years and was coming to do a couple of months to complete his studies. And the first thing on his to-do list was to have coffee this week with this professor, Don Lewis, who was well-known at Regent. He'd, I'd heard many of his lectures online in the past and knew his reputation. And Don was known for being at Regent for the longest time. I think he'd been there nearly 45 years. And he was this sweet, kind, softly spoken man who, passed, who mentored pastors all around the world, mentored more people than I would know. And he was kind of this grandfather figure to everyone at the college. So I was really excited to hear how this coffee went. So I asked him a couple of days later, I asked Sam how it went, thinking maybe he had some pearls of wisdom or he could tell me about Don's hospitality, what it was like to meet with him. And he said it was lovely, all those things did happen, but he said it got off to a bit of an awkward start. Because he met Don and as they went to sit down, as they were still sitting down, Don's first question was, Sam, who do you confess your sin to? It's really confronting, right? I, I much prefer an opener of tell me a little bit about yourself. Like get into a few things and then maybe end there. But as we heard how that conversation went and as Sam and I talked about it, we realised it was such an important, such an insightful question. As we got to know more people around the college over the coming weeks and months, it turned out Don asked nearly everyone this question when he first met them. Everyone, he believed anyone getting into ministry should have a good answer for that question or should be thinking through that question. Not sure if you remember back to our series on work, vocation and ministry last year, I'm convinced all of us are in ministry. Which means if Don's right, and who am I to question Don? And if we are all in ministry, we're all meant to be considering this question. So I ask you, who do you confess your sin to? It's confronting, isn't it? I feel a little bit hypocritical standing up here asking that question, because the truth is I don't have a really good answer myself yet. But I know when I consider that question, it's an important thing to address. Because liturgies shape us, which means confession shapes us. It shapes who we are by making us name the reality of our own struggles, our own temptations, our mistakes, our misgivings. It shapes us by making us accountable to fellow image bearers, making us accountable to God. It opens up the, us up to the reality that we're called to shed the way of death and walk in the way of life, as we heard this morning. Confessions remind, reminds us that we are called to continue to grow. We're shaped by naming things that we need to confront, by recognising we're complicit in things that are wrong, things that deny the goodness of creation, things that deny God himself, things that deny the image-bearing reality of one another. And confession shapes us because it isn't just naming some things and moving on. As if suddenly naming things absolves us of any responsibility. I'm convinced confession has to lead to action. I can't name things in true confession and not go about trying to make those things right. Whether that's seeking restoration, whether it's trying to make sure that doesn't happen again. Naming things mean I go about living my life differently. Which isn't to say we won't trip up again. We'll make the same mistake again. Some of us will struggle with addiction. Some of us will fall back into our old patterns. But ultimately, confession and naming things should help us seek to rectify things. 
Help us seek the King. Even if that means it is a long journey of confession and falling short. Confession and falling short. Because this isn't about guilt and condemnation. I've been thinking this week about this, a story in the Gospels. One's I'd, one I'd never really thought about in terms of confession before. And that's Jesus and the adulterous woman. He comes across her as the town is about to stone her. Her sin is on full display. It isn't questioned. Jesus doesn't deny her sin. But he stands with her. Stands between her and those who seek to kill her. And when they leave, he has this incredible interaction with her. I'm reading John 8, 10 to 11 here. Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. I wonder if sometimes we tell that story without the final line. It'd be nice if Jesus just said he doesn't condemn us and let us go on our way. And he does not condemn us, but he does say, go and sin no more. It resolves in action. I'm convinced this is a model of confession. Because my biggest worry in confession, probably not so much to God, but to you guys, to one another, is judgment. Judgment for airing my dirty laundry, speaking my darkest thoughts, admitting sometimes I choose the way of death over the way of life. But we can look at this story and see what our response should be when we hear each other's stories of sin. We're called to stand with the person, to not condemn them but point them to Jesus, and finally to encourage and implore one another, go and sin no more. In a series on practices, I think we need to look at what this is, look at how we live this out, and hopefully in all our gatherings we'll be doing some practices. Before you freak out, I think I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and confess your wildest sins. I'm not. You don't need to conveniently time a bathroom break. But I do encourage you in the next week or two, ask yourself that question. Don's question. To whom do you confess your sin? Don passed away a couple of months ago and I've been ruminating on a lot of the wisdom he imparted on my life, um, much of the wisdom he imparted on many people's lives. But this week I've been returning to that question he asked most people. To whom do you confess your sin? And I've been convicted, I've been resolved that in the coming weeks and months, in this season of Lent, I want to form habits and practices that leave me with a good answer to his question. This week as we sit in this space of confession, I'd encourage you to consider that as well. To find someone or some people that you're in the habit of confessing to. As our hope is obvious, we don't just confess to one another, but we also confess to God. It's the easy part of our prayer to skip through, isn't it? Um, Lord, forgive me my sins, and then move on to naming all the things that are great in the world. Thanking God for all these things. Telling him what we want in the world. I'm happy to spend a lot of time in those spaces. I don't love spending time in naming all I've done wrong today, all that I need to work on. We heard many passages this morning. I want to read a few more that just emphasise the Bible keeps bringing this up. Psalm 32.5 I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Proverbs 28.13 People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. 
1 John 1.9. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Read the Psalms, these examples of prayers in many ways, and the psalmist is someone who continually brings their sin before God, confesses in prayer. We are called to be a people who do the same. We don't do this for God's benefit. We're not providing him with information he was unaware of. God doesn't need us record-keeping for him. Confession helps us in our relationship with him. We recognise that we, can, we sin against God. Our sin is against him. But he is also helping us in our restoration. He does not condemn us. He stands with us. This is the first practice I want to start with this morning. I'm going to do a few. At Richmond, we're a bunch of introverts, so practices are always tricky. good one is the first one's in silence. I just want to take a minute or two silently to spend some time in that awkward part of prayer, the prayer we're tempted to skip over. We're just going to pray in our own heads, naming before God the things we're struggling with, naming that we do fall short, asking for his work in us. So let's just take a minute or two to do that. You know where we've fallen short. We thank you that you forgive us and you do not condemn us. Help us to sin no more. Amen. We've talked so far about what we might consider individual sin, our own journeys, our own struggles. Something we shouldn't forget from that helpful Wikipedia definition is that these things are communal, which is why we don't just confess to God, we also confess to one another. But we also name that as groups of people, we participate in sin. We oppress other groups. We create systems that benefit us and disadvantage others. We fall short in our collective calling. We see throughout the Bible groups of people confessing to God as nations, as the church, as collectives, which isn't a view of the world we're pretty used to holding, not one I'm fairly comfortable holding, if I'm honest. And naming a collective sin is tricky, isn't it? Because if I name we've done this, I'm saying you've done this wrong. I'm naming you're a sinner, which, as we already said this morning, we know is true, but we don't really love saying. We fall captive to sin. We participate in the way of death all the time. And part of our gatherings, part of our rhythms, should be to name the way that we, as the church, as families, as workplaces, as humanity, we fall short in the way we honour God, in the way that we love others, in the way that we care for his good creation. I think in our culture, we've had this focus on individualism, which has its benefits and has its downfalls. We react to being told that we are sinners. We struggle with the idea that we should look at to reconcile for the sins of our ancestors. We struggle to name that we are complicit in a lot of what is going on in the world, things that we can put out of sight. And once again, they're important things to name. So the second practice I want to do together is to go through a couple of communal prayers, to speak some words out loud as a community. Um, I've got two prayers that I want to read through. One is a call and response prayer that a, a church over in America came up with. And the second one is a church by Walter Brueggemann, a, a theologian we talk about a little bit at Richmond, who appears on our slides each week um, before we join the gathering. But if you're able to, I'd love for you to stand we're going to have the words of this first prayer up on the stage and I'll read through the call and I'll ask you to read with me the red response. If you're able to stand now. 
there are many ways to be unfaithful to what we have become through baptism, to our commitment and our obedience to God. We offer God now our prayers of repentance. We confess to you, living God, our failure to live as brothers and sisters and as your children. We confess to you, loving God, that we have not loved you as you have loved us. We confess to you, gracious God, that we have doubted your word and failed to obey its teaching. We confess to you, merciful God, our desire to own you and contain you within our doctrines and theologies. We confess to you, almighty God, that we do not acknowledge you as Lord of all the earth. Forgive us and redeem us, for we have not allowed your presence to shine among us. In many ways in which we have failed, in our commitment and obedience to our fellow men and women, we turn towards our neighbours and our friends and offer them our prayers of repentance. We'll go to this second prayer, Walter Brueggemann. I'll ask you to read the whole thing with me. Free us, Lord, from our obsession with ourselves, long enough to care for others, to be so concerned about the well-being of the human community that we do not have to worry about our place, our church, our class, our values, our vested interests. Help us to know the joy and freedom of putting all our trust in you. Amen. Please take a seat. Finally, I want to turn our attention to the day that kicked off Lent during the week, Ash Wednesday. In the spirit of confession, I need to confess, I actually didn't know what Ash Wednesday was until a couple of years ago. I knew it was, I thought it was to do with some bushfires in the 80s, and obviously that is also a thing. But I've only recently learned about the Christian tradition of Ash Wednesday, which is a practice that grounds us in the reality we've been sitting in in our last series that we are mortal beings who came from the dust of the ground and one day will return to the dust of the ground. A few years ago, actually while we were in Canada, Tamara and I had our first experience of an Ash Wednesday service where an, a, with cro- ash, a cross is made on your forehead and depending on, on the tradition, one of the following lines is repeated. Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Or in other traditions, repent and believe in the gospel. As much as liturgy makes me itchy, I love that service. Went on to reflect on brokenness, mortality, even death. And as much as those are difficult spaces to sit in, I hope over the last few weeks we've recognised they're important spaces to sit in at times, important spaces to reflect upon. But as I was preparing for this week and considering confession and also looking at Ash Wednesday and the tradition of Lent, I was struck that both the, both the lines that are said as the ashes placed on the forehead in that cross are both confessions. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return, is very much a confession of our mortality. The fact that often we live as though we are immortal. Repent and believe in the gospel is a confession of our brokenness and the fact that we transgress. I don't think we need to spend too much time reflecting on death, given all we've talked about over the last month. We seem to be reminded each week that the death rate still sits at 100%. But the final practice I want to participate in is one based on Ash Wednesday. And if we're doing a traditional service, we would have had a priest in this morning, standing up the front with a bowl of ash and water mixed up, and you all would have been in a line and waiting to have that repeated to you. In the world of COVID, we thought having one person here touching everyone's face, a little bit problematic. 
played around with maybe trying to touch the forehead of the person next to you, but even that's hard to get through a COVID safe plan. But what I'm going to get us to do is in a minute, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and repeat that line. Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. We'll have it up on the screen. As you do so, I'll ask you to make that mark on your own forehead. We won't have ash, so we won't be walking out of here with smudged foreheads. But after we've done that, we're going to do that for about 30 seconds. I'll get Ryan to play a video for us with a song that's based on this Ash Wednesday liturgy. I'll ask you to reflect on those confessions, that we are dust, to dust we will return, that we need to repent and believe in the gospel. I'll get you to do that now, and I'll ask Ryan to play the video after that. I love reflecting on that song and that truth. I think that's why liturgies like Ash Wednesday is so important. They remind us of truth. Mentioned at the start, Lent points to Easter. We're not left in our own shame and guilt. I hope all our practices remember that Lent points to Easter. As you said, some are easier to see than others, but confession of our sin and our mortality, they help point to the person of Jesus. They point to the cross. On the cross, we see sin overcome. On the cross, we see death overcome. So to confess that we continue to fall short in ourselves, in the things we do, and to confess that our bodies are mortal and will one day return to dust is not the final word. Easter is coming. And at Easter, we see on a cross, Jesus turned to a robber, hanging beside him, someone well aware of their own sin, someone well aware of their own mortality, knows their body is about to fail them. And they turn to Jesus and confess that he is Lord. Jesus doesn't focus on their mortality or their sin. Instead says, today you will join me in paradise. A paradise where sin will be no more. Death will be no more. Our bodies won't decay and die. A paradise where we won't be slaves to our temptation. Confession helps us name that we long for that time. Confession helps us realise that right now we can paint a small picture of what that can be. Easter reminds us that our confessions have not fallen on deaf ears, that we are not condemned, that Jesus stands with us. He has conquered death, he has conquered sin. One more time together, let's pray. King Jesus, you are good. You have conquered those things that enslave us. We've named before you those things that we struggle with, those areas we fall short in, as individuals, as a community. Lord, help us grow. In the words of those songs, make us whole. Lord, in this coming week, help us develop practices, liturgies and habits that point us to you point us to what you are doing. Lord, we love you. You are the good king. Amen.